0: Amen. Please be seated. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 18. There is an insert with the passage there listed for you. If you would prefer, please hold that and follow that or have your Bibles open so you can follow as I reference verses. We are in Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, This one uh, ventured all the way to Greece, Macedonia, as it was called in antiquity. So far, it's been an eventful trip, to say the least. Uh, he was beaten terribly and jailed at Philippi. He was run out of Thessalonica. He was run out of Berea. Um, he was separated from his friends, Timothy and Silas, headed south to Athens, where he was alone for some time, overwhelmed with the idolatry there, started speaking, had opposition from all sorts of directions. So he moves from one place, Athens, with that burden of idolatry, to a new place before us today, Corinth, a place with a different kind and level of idolatry. The Corinthian church established in this visit. Two letters in the New Testament are written to this church. It's often referred to in American congregations as a church like American culture. And that's true. If you study Corinthian culture in the first century, There are quite a few parallels that we will see. This is where the Apostle first meets the Corinthians. Follow as I read. This is God's inspired and inerrant and authoritative and thus sufficient word. Acts 18, 1-17. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. For now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was pro- pro-council of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of, this, of these things. And, they, and he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, as we open your word, please send your spirit to do his work of illumination so that we might understand the meaning and how to live accordingly. Thank you, Lord, for Scripture. Thank you for this sustenance which we need. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So Paul comes to Corinth, Corinth, the most profound city yet in his itinerary. We see him use his normal approach. He goes to the Jewish synagogue first and begins preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, sacrificed for our sins, and raised again. This is ancient Corinth, though, a truly unique city in the first century, really in history. Athens, where he had just come from, was a place of great reputation and tradition for sure, but it was a city on decline. Its heyday was many years before. 10,000 residents in Athens, still a sizable ancient city. Much culture there for sure, held in high prestige. But this was Corinth. This was the happening city in the first century in Europe of those days, in Greece. Corinth is located in that skinny little strip of land, the isthmus, between northern Greek and southern Greek. That little strip of land. Right there, Corinth laid. That meant it was a funnel of sorts for people traveling from north to south. Commerce would come through. uh, People for athletic events, for entertainment. All manner of thing, all manner of travel coming from the north would have to go through Corinth. So Athens was 10,000 people strong. Corinth in the greater metropolitan area approached near a million. That's a lot of people today, let alone in antiquity. And they were concentrated in the city of Corinth. In the first century, this was a very, very active region because of the sea around it, uh, the Aegean Sea, and then, of course, the Mediterranean. Corinth was always hopping with commerce and business. And in in addition to this, there was a huge temple there to the, the worship of Aphrodite. There were several worship centers throughout Corinth, and they all celebrated some kind of sexuality and source of perversion in sexuality. It was, it was everything you could imagine um, rolled up into one place. All practices, all kinds of religions, all kinds of uh, business enterprises. There was a huge Olympic Games that happened every year in Corinth and athletes from all over. Uh, the, the praise of the aesthetic, physical beauty and sensuality, it was, it was on full display in Corinth all the time. In fact, to be Corinthianized was a way of the ancients saying you would become corrupted. I don't know how to compare it today. Maybe Las Vegas would be like this. But Vegas was developed for just that purpose, um, for, for hedonism. Um, Corinth was that, but it also was an intellectual center and a cultural center on top of it. So it really had all sorts of things happening at once, all kinds of ideas, lots of individualism. People went there to do what they wanted to do. had an independent sense about it, as though it was detached from the Roman Empire a little bit. That's where you went uh, to have a good time or to to live out whatever it is you wanted to do. This was the reputation of this place called Corinth. One scholar identifies first century Corinth like this. It was a place without aristocracy, without tradition, and without well-established citizens. Anything-goes kind of culture. Another scholar describes the Corinthians of the first century as recognizing no superior in no law but its own desires. You can see how this might be compared to American culture, a very individualistic society that we live in. People should be able to go do what they want to do. That's kind of the the sentiment you get. And of course, that leads us to all sorts of places, just like the Corinthians. You can see all these things converging in this place to make it a strategic cultural center. Following the great commission of Christ, Paul really had to go there at some point to bring the message of the gospel. Corinth was a place with lots of wealthy people, new money, new businesses, tradespeople abounded, all sorts of religions and philosophers converged, perverse, pervasive sexual practice celebrated and sexualization was rampant. Corinth glorified athleticism and athletes. It was a gateway to the world as many spoke of it. It was a here and now Culture, but it was strategic for the gospel. Few places on earth were like Corinth the year that Paul arrived, probably 50 AD. Paul reveals he was anxious. We know this when he wrote to the Thessalonians later from there. He was anxious in that place, he was nervous, even a bit discouraged. In the midst of his fear and loneliness, though, God spoke audibly to Paul, assuring him of his presence and protection and telling him to keep on speaking. And herein lies the the great encouragement to us, the church, today. On the top level, most importantly, the book of Acts is the story of the Holy Spirit empowering mere men to carry the gospel to the world. It's the record of that. But on the second level, we are wise to watch what these men and women do in sharing the gospel following the patterns and the practices they have, seeing what repeats, what things still apply today, what we can draw from it. And this is just one of those stories, just another one of them. Assured of his presence and protection, Paul is able to go continue witnessing. Likewise, assured of his presence and protection, the church, Christians, we can go on witnessing for Christ no matter what obstacle comes. Paul's stop in Corinth was one of his longest, 18 months, And we see his witness for Christ in a fuller way than we get in Thessalonica or Berea or even Athens. Here we see his witness in a full orbed way. We see it to be strategic. He does some of the same things he has done before. He goes to the synagogue first and works from there. He has a particular plan in place. We see that he is always working in cooperation with others. He's only alone a little bit. Most of the time he's looking for others to team up with, to cooperate with. He does so with Timothy and Silas and Mark and Barnabas before that, and then he meets Aquila and Priscilla here. He doesn't want to be alone. He want to, wants to work with other believers. We also see him be creative. He had been sustained by the churches and maybe monies he had before. Now he comes to Corinth, and he's running short. And so he takes up a trade that he knew, which was leather working or tent making. He finds employment, and he earns money while he's establishing himself in Corinth so that he can preach the gospel. He's creative about the mission that he's given. He doesn't say, I don't have enough money, I can't do this. He finds a way to get the money so that he can go do this. He shows this creativity in the mission, in the ministry he's given. Of all the things we can say about Paul, he's persistent. Um, He was stoned and left for dead at one point in the first missionary journey. He got back up and went right back into the city. Now we see again opposition, obstacles, antagonists, enemies. But he's persistent. He keeps with the mission God has given him, and God blesses him with assurance. And he's protected. Now, this is not to say that he's always protected. We all know that's not the case. Sometimes he's physically harmed because he is faithful to the gospel. But in this case, we have on display a little blip in time where God gives him freedom to preach the gospel without worrying for attack. And that's something that happens at times in the life of the church. Where you have this little reprieve from opposition and you could preach the gospel clearly in that period of time. Let's walk through the passage together and see this witness, this full-orbed witness of the Apostle Paul on display. We see his strategy being used once again, which is an encouragement to us to have a mindset or a plan about how we go about ministering the name of Christ. Individually and as a church, strategic witness for Christ on display, even in where he went. Verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Athens was like the old picture of prestige and tradition. Corinth was the new picture of what was hopping and happening. He goes to Corinth as a strategic move. He goes to a place of influence. Now recognize, when he goes to these places, sometimes the results aren't as great as you might imagine, although many believers came from this. It's going to a place like this there's a record of him going there and what he said, and that becomes important throughout the generations, even, even up to now, where we are reading the book of Acts and we have read the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, it echoes through the ages, this choice to go to this city. And here's the fact, cities comprise 40% of the earth's population. They're important. Now, we often retreat to the suburbs because we want to avoid things that we see are, as negative in the cities. But recognize the cities are strategic places. This is where many, many people live. Many ideas come, come, come there. Yes, many difficulties happen there too when you have so much humanity in one place. There will be conflict. There will be disagreement. But these are still strategic places. Paul sees that, and when he visits, he goes to cities and preaches clearly the gospel. He doesn't change his message. His creativity about getting the message may adapt, but the message is always on point. And it's clearly Christ and him crucified for the forgiveness of our sins. And we know it's true because he was raised again. And he preaches Jesus and him crucified everywhere he goes. And he goes to the cities to bring this message so it can be broadcasted. Clearly a strategy. Now he meets two friends, Aquila and Priscilla, who had had to flee from another city. And then look at verse 4 of our passage. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. We've seen this strategy employed before. He goes first to the people who have a connect point with him through scripture. The Jews would know what the Old Testament says about a messianic hope. He can then say Christ is the fulfillment. And he starts there right away with people that should know. Now we see that he gets frustrated at this juncture. He's done this many, many times and they weren't listening. And God even uses that frustration in Providence to have him broadcast the message beyond just the Jews. That was always God's plan. But a strategy is to start where there's commonality and go from there. And that's a great strategy for ministry. Start where there's a commonality and then grow from there. And as you think about developing strategies for taking the gospel to key places, we do this in our personal relationships. You all all already have people in your life who don't know Christ, who have something in common with you. It might be your workplace. It could be some hobby, music you like to listen to, entertainment you like, books you like to read. You live your neighbors with them. Go down the list of reasons you may be connected to them. God's given you that opening, and through that, you have opportunity to witness for Christ. Um, that's a, a wonderful, time-tested strategy for the gospel going forward. Find the commonalities and enter through those commonalities with a message of Christ and what we have in Christ. Think about it in, the ter- in terms of even efforts we take as a church. We, you know, we're not super creative over here case anyone didn't notice. And that comes, you know, probably from leadership. We're not ultra creative. We're not very entertaining. But we've got a few ideas that work. Find where people are hurting and go help them in their hurts and then share Christ with them as you have opportunity. Join up with ministries that do the same. Uh, Not one or the other, both. We see something we can contribute to, so we go to Mexico and we help build, help build a building or help provide this or that service and share Christ. We go to the Omaha Nation, just simply love people, help people with whatever is going on in their life that they need help with, at the same time share with them Christ. Totally genuine, totally above board, not saying a bait and switch, this is just who we are, we want to help. Everyone can understand need, we all have it. Let's try to help meet those needs while being careful in that connection to express the gospel of Jesus to them. Um, This strategy is simple, but it's pointed and intentional, and Paul does it regularly. He looks for a commonality. From that commonality, he expresses Christ. We try this in all the various ways the Lord gives us. Something else we notice manifested in this longer ministry he has in Corinth is cooperation. Now, we've seen it before, but this is the first time he's really uh, mentioned relationship with someone who is at current occupying Corinth. Now, Aquila and Priscilla were not natives to Corinth, but he looks for people of kindred spirit, he connects with them, he teams with them, and ministers alongside them. And then shortly thereafter, Timothy and Silas finally join him. Look at verse 2. We're introduced to two dear saints in the life of Paul. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Why did they go all the way down to Corinth from Italy? Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Claudius had issued a decree to run the Jews out of Rome. And so they had a business there, Quill and Priscilla, a successful one, no doubt. But they had to leave. They had no choice. So they went and set up shop in a place that makes sense, where there's lots of commerce. They would have known to go to Corinth or try it out, see what it was like. And there they were. And they are connected providentially to Paul. Most likely they had heard of each other's names or knew they're in the same trade. They might have known each uh, of each other before, but they're clearly more deeply acquainted here. As Paul meets this couple who own a house where he is able to stay for the for the 18 months that he ministers there. And they are partners in that way in ministry. Partners also in that they provide a job for Paul while he's there. They probably had the business set up. He was a, a leather worker, so could work for them or with them. And he was able to sustain himself during this time. This is a cooperative witness for Christ, and we need cooperation with other believers in Christ. Um, we should note that ministry done most successfully is when we cooperate with each other. We see it on the first level with, with our fellow church members. When there are ministries that arise, uh, whatever they are in the church, they work better when we come together. Sure. When we come together, you know, there's times where there's a little uh, conflict that can happen. But we step back from it and recognize, even as we work through those things, we're stronger for it. And we're just more effective when we bring our gifts together in cooperation to minister the gospel internally and then externally. I mean, it's also true in a wider level. We've had a wonderful blessing in the mission trips that you all uh, send teams to, to participate in. We almost always partner with other churches in those efforts, and we're strengthened by seeing other churches of like heart and mind uh, immediately wanting to minister alongside one another for the sake of the gospel. Even beyond our own church or denomination, to know other believers in different traditions denominationally who trust in Christ and believe in his word, we could join in with various various efforts to promote things that are gospel-proclaiming, or they set up the gospel to to be proclaimed. I'm thinking of advice and aid. Tonight we're going to have one of the representatives come and explain this ministry. I hope you all come to hear it. It's a a powerful ministry that we partner with, uh, other believers partner with, to help this wonderful ministry at a very basic level try to meet the needs of, of, of women and families. And in that, are able to share the gospel of Christ in a holistic way. And so there's cooperation with ministries like that, that do the work of Christ and proclaim the name of Christ. If not right away, secondarily. Cooperation manifested by Paul. When he could have done a lot on his own, he needed the help of others. And when he's in prison, he writes about all those people he cooperated with, had his teammates over the course of his ministry, and he thanks them. Right unto the end of the letters that we read from Paul. Verse 2, the second part, he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. They were tent makers by trade. And then later, verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, finally, it seems, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. They're cooperating for the purpose of testifying for Christ. That's why the cooperation happens. Now, interestingly, we never saw Timothy and Silas show up in Athens. Remember, we're waiting for them to come. Well, we know from what Paul writes in Thessalonians that they, had got, they got to Athens, but Paul wrote a letter to the Thessalonians, and at least Timothy went back to deliver it. So they were separated again. Now he gets down to Corinth, and they show up again. And he's just relieved with their presence. They're, they're back. They're together again, and there's an encouragement that comes from this cooperation. Obstacles will come up. There will be challenges that come up. There will be weaknesses we have individually, but when we come together and cooperate, Committed to Christ and his word, much can be accomplished. And Paul demonstrates this over and over again in his ministry recorded in the New Testament. Notice something else. Um, he's, he's able to adapt to the situation he finds himself in. Now let me be clear to say, he doesn't adapt the message, but the method of getting that message out has to be creative at times, especially when needs arise that he didn't first foresee or have. So he's very creative in how he ministers. Verse 3, Because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. He had the skill set, the trade of leatherworking or tent making. Now you have to understand, all the tents, which made up a lot of the dwellings, especially in major marketplaces, were made from leather. And they were constantly in need of repair and replacement and refreshing and so forth. So to be a leather worker was a good trade. And you could travel anywhere in the Roman Empire and you would find a need for that. Uh, it's like being a nurse or something that you can, a mechanic, you can go anywhere and there will be need for this. Paul had that. Now he was supplied for by the churches that sent him. He was a man of some means before he left the, being a Pharisee. So he probably had some way to sustain himself generally. He never stayed around very long, got kicked out of most places pretty quick. But this place, he was gonna be there a while and he needed to establish himself. So he found a job. He was creative about it. God's given me this mission. I'm supposed to stay on mission. If I can't pay for it, or if people can't help sustain it, then I will have to do it myself, and that's what he did. And many ministers and missionaries the world over do just this kind of, it's called tent-making ministry. They go with the trade they have, and then they minister Christ wherever they are. Uh, so he's very creative about how he goes uh, to live out the ministry that God has given him. Stayed there and worked, and then as a result of that sustenance, he was then, in verse 4, able to reason in the synagogue every Sabbath. So he's able to do the work of the ministry while being creative. One of the most creative people I've ever met in ministry, in America too. You see this tent making type of thing in other countries mostly, but But you all pay your pastors, and American churches generally pay their pastors pretty well. We don't have to do other things beyond studying the Word and preaching and doing the ministry. But most pastors in the world uh, don't have that luxury. But it's interesting, some will come here, and I'm thinking of Pavel Horhev, who is a pastor friend of ours who ministers at the Russian-speaking church here in Kansas City. Um, He ministers to mostly immigrants from Russian-speaking countries. They can't afford to pay him full-time, or at least they couldn't for a long time. So what did he do? He fixed cars, and I mean he fixed them, fixes them good, and he trained other people how to fix cars so they can sustain themselves. So when they came over from the various Russian-speaking countries, they would get a job with him fixing cars and restoring them and selling them, and that was a way to sustain their own family lives, and he himself as a pastor for many years. And he doesn't do it as much anymore, although he still does. I think he kind of just likes it too. It's just fun for him to fix stuff like that because he can. But it's a creative way that he has devised and he teaches others to sustain themselves and to do ministry and to be about a gospel witness. And I think there are many ways we can imagine that kind of creativity being used with the goal to having a platform to preach the gospel of Christ. Whatever it is God has given you and gifted you to do. Paul, if he was anything, we'd have to say that he was persistent. That's what we see in his witness. Uh, probably maybe mo- more most of anything. He's on point all the time. Same message. But he is very persistent in it. He's persevering. He's unrelenting. He's diligent. He's resolute. Determined because God has given in this mission and he knows that he's supposed to carry it out. Look at verse 5. Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And here it comes. You knew it was coming, right? And when they opposed and reviled him, it wasn't like... Guess what? You're not going to believe what happened. Like, we all know what's happened. We know what's coming. This is the pattern. And when they opposed and reviled him, he gets a bit frustrated, more so than we see in other instances. He shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. For now on, I will go to the Gentiles. I've told you. I've put this before you. I've showed it to you in scriptures, the scriptures, and you don't believe me, so it's on you now. I'm leaving you, and I'm going to go to someone else who will listen. That's Persistence. He, and this is what he does. This is a great. This is classic Paul 7. Look what he does in verse 7. So he essentially it seems like he walks out of the synagogue. It'd be like me walking out here. You know, I'm, I'm tired of you all not listening to me. I walk out around the pond and then go into the subdivision and knock on the first door I come to. Because I'm going to talk to that person because you won't listen anymore. That's kind of what he does. He goes next door. He left there and went to the house of a man named Tidius Justus. That's a Gentile name. But a worshiper of God, one of those people who was interested in the faith, interested in what the Jews were teaching in the synagogue, he knew of this man. He goes right to that guy's house because that guy's receptive. He was next door to the synagogue. Now, this is a part I love, among other parts. Crispus, who was the ruler of the synagogue, apparently to be the ruler just simply meant you probably own the property, and you open it up for your fellow Jews to come in and worship, and you would maintain it. You might have some authority in teaching, but generally speaking, it was more a statement of the one who was the caretaker of it probably owned it. So it says that Crispus here, in verse 8, the ruler of the synagogue believed in the Lord together together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So he's frustrated with the, the synagogue on the whole. The ruler of the synagogue comes to Christ, and this Gentile man next door comes to Christ. And so people are coming to Jesus now. Many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Uh, John Stott summarizes this effort of Paul when he gets frustrated with the Jews and just goes to the Gentiles. He says this, Paul's audacious, audacious decision to move from the synagogue to home from Jewish to Gentile evangelism was quickly vindicated by God not only through the conversion and baptism of many but also through a vision of Jesus that through the adi- that, and through the attitude of the Roman authorities so as a result of his persistence God gives him an affirmation that to keep on speaking and then at the same time he lessens or God's providence has it so the Romans aren't as concerned as they had been in other places so there's a lightening now of the pressure as a result of his perseverance or his persistence in the mission. It won't always be that way, but in this case, we see it. And in verse 9, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Be pers- keep persisting. Keep persevering. Be diligent. Verse 10, I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are, who are my people. That persistence translates into this assurance he gets from God. And it says in verse 11, he got a huge window, a big window for Paul anyways. He stayed there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. He had no opportunity for this in most places. He got run out before that. If anything, Paul was persistent, we can say. And it's a picture of persistence in what he does. Uh, Notice that, that quick phrase in verse 10. He assures Paul by letting him know something that's important for us to realize. I am with you, no one will attack you to harm you. And here it is. For I have many in this city who are my people. So God had ordained his people there, but he ordained the method for them to become known by the preaching of the gospel. And Paul was there to fulfill that in God's plan. Preach the gospel, and like it says earlier in Acts, as many as were appointed, believed. Later, when Paul is writing to Timothy, his good friend Timothy, who's now with him. Timothy became the pastor in Ephesus, the same place he got beat up. So when Timothy was there ministering for a while, Paul wrote Timothy and said this. And think of this in the context of the story we're reading. Paul said to Timothy, "'Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, "'the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. "'I endure everything, Timothy, for the sake of the elect, "'that they also may obtain the salvation "'that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory.'" Paul was driven to pre- preach the gospel, and he had a confidence that God's people were providentially, sovereignly placed in all those places. He didn't worry about how many responded. He just preached the gospel because as many as were appointed by God himself. He could not urge someone into heaven who was not appointed by God, but he was appointed by God to go urge people into heaven. And that's what he does. And he does it time and time again, and his persistence is partially because he believes that there are many in the city who are God's. They just don't know it yet in many cases. So he preaches and he preaches and he preaches. Many of you have had the, oppor- uh, the experience where you heard the gospel over and over again and didn't believe it. And then one day you believed it. So the gospel is preached and when it's time and when God ordains, you will be born again. And you'll trust in Christ. There are many in this city, God says to Paul, who are my people. So go on speaking. Go on speaking. Don't be afraid. Go on speaking. And that leads to the final feature of his ministry, at least in Corinth. Now, this promise that we have from God to Paul, it wasn't like timeless for Paul. We know he got beat up and he got attacked in many places. But there are periods in time in the life of a Christian, in the life of a church, where God gives a certain dispensation of, of freedom from oppression, and we can speak the gospel without getting attacked immediately. Now, I'd argue that our country has had that for a long time, and maybe that's slipping. But we had an epoch in time where you could just preach clearly what the gospel message is. How can you be right with God? Christ, trust in him, and you are right with God. Now, what flows from that? And we talk about that. Um, th- there's an opening to be able to s- express that freely without persecution or opposition. And that happens from time to time. God is giving Paul a bit of that. Look at verse 9. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. He's talking about his ministry in Corinth now. For I have many in the city who are my people, and he stayed a year and six months. That's longer than we've seen. So no one will personally attack. Now, it's true that we all have ultimate protection in Christ, no matter what happens to us outwardly, if we are to preach and we lose our life for it. But this is a specific period of time that he gives for Paul to preach the gospel there in Corinth. i have thought of different experiences or different episodes over the course of history where this was the case. There are probably many we could point to about preparing for a, teaching a class in church history over the next couple of weeks. I'm always drawn to the English Reformation and what happened there. It's kind of amazing if you think about it. Um, basically, from 1640 to 1660, 20 years in English history, 20 years where there wasn't a monarchy saying what you had to believe. And for those 20 years, there was a bit of a, uh, a cooperation between Christians to try to understand what the Bible said and put it to pen. It was only a 20-year window. But that 20-year window provided for us the Westminster Confession of Faith, which I know is not an everyday read for many people, but it's a profound one. It tells you the system of doctrine taught in the Scriptures, and it was penned by pastors and scholars, over 100 of them, who for a 20-year period, when the King Charles I was dethroned, Oliver Cromwell said through the Parliament, Church of Jesus Christ, would you please send your leaders to tell us what the Bible says? That, that's an incredible statement for 20 years in English history, if you hear about it. They don't accent that when you take English history, because it's kind of a blip, a problem in the monarchy. But it's profound for us who believe in the Bible. And even those who aren't, wouldn't say they subscribe to the Westminster Confession, I give it to people all the time who have never read it before, especially when we're interviewing teachers at school. They, they can't believe how profound, especially the first two chapters are who God is and what the Word of God means and what salvation is, what we, replied, we, we said in the, the questions that Billy let us in. I mean, that's profound stuff that helps the church. It helps Christians who will read it. And that came from a, a brief window of opening when the monarchy was dethroned. The divines, if you want to call them that, the pastors and scholars, got together at Westminster Abbey for three years at great cost to themselves, worked out the details of what the Scripture says, They went back to their places. The king was restored, persecuted all those people who wrote that document, but the document couldn't be squashed. And it was a beautiful golden age in the life of the church that still produces fruit today. God sometimes provides for little windows like this, take it from that down to you in some relationship you have with some friend or family member who doesn't know Christ. You've been sharing Christ, sharing Christ, and it's met with antagonism, antagonism, and don't talk to me about that or argument. And then some moment appears it could be minutes or a simple statement, you know, Tony, could you tell me a little more about that thing you told me about? And the window opens, and you have an opportunity. Just be ready for it. When the window opens, when that brief period is on display, share Christ. You could be right with God, because you know you're wrong with God. You know it. You know we all are, because we're sinners. And you could be right with Him through Christ. You can have Christ righteousness if you believe on Him and what He did. And then through Christ's righteousness, you're right with God because he'll look at you like he looks at his son and he'll never reject his son. He'll never reject you in Christ. When that window's open, be ready to share that message because maybe God has that person ready for that moment. So on the corporate church level, but on the personal level, that window could open, God could give that protection from opposition and you could have your opportunity and God will have you ready for it. It's not humorous what happens at the end, but we're allowed to have a little bit of levity when we think about this scene unfolds, since Paul has been beat down so many times, literally. You get to verse 12, down to the last part of the last verse, verse 17. You don't Maybe you're a better person than me, so you won't laugh at what happens here, but it is a little bit funny. Look at what happens. So Gallio, who's pro consul, like the governor, sort of like Pilate was in Jerusalem, when Gallio was pro consul in Achaia, the greater state that Corinth was in, the Jews made a united attack on Paul. They were done with Paul. Finally it came. So they brought him before the civil magistrate, the civil court, the tribunal. And they said, verse 13, this man Paul is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. They wanted him out. They wanted him punished. This is a great line. So Paul's fired up. He's still fired up about these people. He's ready to say a thing or two. And maybe he was prone to say things before he thought it, occasion. He's an apostle. Even apostles can do that. But look what Luke records. I think Luke, Luke is... Uh, Inspired by the Holy Spirit, clearly, but these little statements give you some of the personality. Verse fourteen. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, "If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint." He said, "You can tell he's just exasperated with these complaints." But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourself. I refuse to be a judge in these things. And just because of the waste of time of the matter, it got more frustration brewing. And now there is another ruler at the synagogue because Crispus is no longer there, right? So he drove them from the tribunal. Get out of here. And as they went out of the tribunal, they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, like the representative of the person who brought this uprising. They all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. This is the first time we've finally seen Paul get a little something here. Just a little bit of sway. You know, It wasn't him who got beat down this time. This time, God showed his hand of protection in such a way that the normal beating that Paul would receive, Sosthenes, he got that instead. It was a message of God's protection in a unique period of time. I'm not saying we should look for that in our windows, but recognize that there is the clarity of God's hand upon us doing things that only he could have done and orchestrated, especially when it's gone another way most of the time. So we've kind of watched Paul's profound ministry in Corinth. We know why he wrote two really long books or letters to the Corinthians. He spent 18 months with them. He A very difficult place to live too. And there he was for those 18 months. I wonder oftentimes what gave Paul such a, such a tenacious spirit about the mission that God gave him. I think that it is summarized in his letter that he writes to the Corinthians after spending his 18 months with them. Listen to these words in closing that Paul says to the Corinthians when he writes back to them. He says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom. I decided when I came to you, Corinthians, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You know, he didn't solve all the social problems of Corinth. He didn't solve all the issues that were happening. He didn't dress every... Po- he came for one purpose. His purpose was to preach Christ crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power. So that, you Corinthians, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men... I bumbled around in my ministry. I did whatever I could. But I didn't want you to have faith in man, but in demonstration of the spirit and power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Clarity about the mission that he was given by God made him persistent and tenacious. It helped him to strategize carefully, look for cooperation, Be diligent in what he pursued. Receive the protection of God in a very acute way that we find here. He didn't get distracted. He stayed focused. And focus leads to faithful diligence. And we see that on display in this ministry that Paul is partaking in. Assured of his presence and protection, Paul was able to continue witnessing for Christ. Church, Christians, we are assured of God's presence and protection. His protection in the ultimate sense for sure. So therefore, we as the church, as believers, are to continue witnessing for Christ no matter the obstacles. Go on speaking. Let's close as I lead us in prayer. Lord, help us not to turn aside from your calling and mission because of fear, fear of man or fear of what might happen to us in some other way. But rather, give us courage through the Holy Spirit. Help us to keep serving, to keep hoping and proclaiming and contending for the faith. Help us to recognize your hand of provision and ultimate protection. Lord, we know that whatever may happen to us on this earth, whatever may happen, no real harm can befall us because we are alive in Christ forevermore. Help us to remember that what we do for you will indeed bear fruit for your glory and exaltation. I pray this in Christ's name, amen.